Hey, you're listening to the Viable Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Chris White. Welcome to Masters of Market Structure. Well, it's, it's my pleasure um, to uh, start this podcast with uh, Christina Fan, the co-founder and CEO of Seven Chord. And uh, Christina has a, an excellent background around not just market structure, but entrepreneurship. And um, it's a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you, Chris. And so what, what I'd like to get into before we talk about uh, more about what Seven Chord's doing and just market structure and technology, I'd love to hear your background story, like sort of how did you get to this point in your career? Um, what's your asset class background? Like, tell me where you come from. Sure. Um, so I started my career a long time ago at uh, a firm called Bear Stearns. Um, I know uh, uh, yesterday was uh, March 14th, which was a sour day for many folks, <laughs> but um, despite all that, we have um, the uh, finest uh, memories and warmest memories about that place. Um, so I started there in 99, uh, and uh, I spent about um, seven years there. Um, and what were you working on at Bear? Like, at the beginning of your career, you were... Um, so I uh, spent most of my time there in... Uh, uh, my entire career was about credit. So my uh, first job out of college was um, uh, working with uh, uh, the counterparty credit uh, group uh, at Bear Stearns. And that was actually exactly the group that um, was involved with long-term capital and um, played a, um, a very important role um, in the story that we all know and love. Um, and uh, from there, I joined the credit trading group, um, uh, did research, uh, traded tranches and uh, structured products. Um, and uh, in uh, 2006, I um, uh, went to Scotia Capital, um, also did uh, um, origination and uh, structured products there. And after that, I uh, lived in London for a couple of years, um, uh, raised a family and uh, did my master's degree uh, at London School of Economics, uh, came back to New York, and uh, um, uh, my uh, career led me to the same exact building, so I uh, rejoined uh, uh, J.P. Morgan after uh, the transition. Um, and at J.P. Morgan, um, that was my first fintech experience. Uh, so I worked in the product development team at uh, uh, putting together the, um, uh, OT in the OTC clearing group, um, which, um, you know, as you know, um, was a brand new, um, a brand new business. Um, with strong uh, trading technology and uh, um, financial technology focus. Um, obviously, it's not the same as uh, doing your own um, enterprise, but um, it was a greenfield operation. Um, no, which well, I think well, I, I, well, I think you're, you're, it sounds like you're transitioning to actual product development. Like, okay, right. we have an idea, how do we build it? Um, it wasn't the cozy confines of the biggest bank in the world for, for credit, but. It, it's still it's still a transition. So, how long did it? Uh, you know, what was your role in terms of building out clearing? What what what, what part did you take in the in the process at JP? So, I was uh, part of the product development team, and uh, my focus was mainly on uh, uh, analytics, on risk analytics, and also uh, margin analytics. Mm -hmm. um, so, obviously, this was um, uh, the time when the market structure was completely changing, and I think what um, it, we, we, I think the market was pretty, people like me, were pretty complacent about 
what is happening behind the scenes. Um, so if you ask an average trader, they probably won't be able to explain to you how the pipes really work. Uh, and I think that what Dodd Frank really did it was um, really made the market participants think and question how the market structure has really evolved. Well, well I want to back you up for a second because timeline that you're talking about is it really that time period where the market was realizing that counterparty credit in the derivatives markets you know for CDS was something that needed to be resolved was that, is that the, this the time period that we're talking about yeah exactly and not just the uh, in the OTC market but also in futures so I think that um, you know all the discussions uh, that were happening with the industry participants really made uh, folks uh, the deeper, right? Because uh, you know the, the market has evolved. The derivative market and the clearinghouse uh, uh, infrastructure has evolved over the, the uh, previous twenty years, and uh, folks who maybe were on the in the original uh, design uh, participated in the original design were no longer there. So I think the the market has changed. The situation has changed. The risks and um, the players have changed and. Um, I think it was a very important time for for the industry. So after clear, central clearing was established, um, then what was your next step after that? What? So the next step uh, was um, I was very happy to join BlackRock. Um, I was part of the risk and quantitative analysis group where uh, my job was mainly looking at the clearing houses and uh, just broadly looking at the risks that the changes in the market structure um, could post for uh, the BlackRock managed funds. Um, so some of the issues that we touched upon were the uh, uh, regulatory changes um, that had to do with the dealer balance sheets and um, um, the changing role of the um, financial market infrastructure firms, uh, like large clearing houses and what they were involving into. Um, so it was a, a tremendously interesting job and I think that uh, it really made me think um, about kind of the balance of power in, in the market. Um, and you know that's really where the, some of the ideas uh, for this current business were born. So I want to I talk about Seven Chord um, in terms of what, what you're developing, but um, <clears throat> what was the original concept behind Seven Chord? Like what, what sort of hit you and said, I've got to now leave BlackRock and, and, and start, you know, We've got to start a fintech firm. What, what, what was the idea that was sort of burning a hole in your head? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that uh, probably many of uh, um, folks in the market know that we started as with the idea of being um, building an algorithmic trading firm. Um, you know, we... Um, Wait, when you say algorithmic trading, algorithmic trading of what product? Um, of corporate bonds. So specifically focusing on credit and uh, uh, Cash. We, we wanted to start with cash and had broader uh, plans of potentially doing derivatives at some point. So you were going to participate as as an actual like a buy side institution that has a a, a quant driven strategy with automated trading techniques. That's correct. That was the original plan. Okay. And what what year was that when you were? So about that? that was uh, probably end of two thousand sixteen, uh, where the plan uh, evolved in that in that form. Right, and, and this is this is really interesting to me because <clears throat> I'm I'm 
keenly aware of the history around people trying to do something like this and, and have a bit of background in you know, the underlying mechanics of it. Um, but I think uh, something I hope that you can agree on is you have to actually try it to understand like, whether it can work or whether it can't work. So at that point in time, what were some of your assumptions around automated trading strategies with, cat, with corporate bonds? Like, what, what did you think was uh, possible or, or the, the initial mission? I think, uh, uh, you know, my personal um, <clears throat> understanding was that the market probably was not ready for uh, the trading to be fully automated and fully algorithmic. However, we all thought that this was the future and we still think that. Um, However, uh, where the boundary of automation is uh, really depends on um, many different things. I mean, uh, you know, some of them, how much information can you extract from the market in form of data? Um, and what we, you know, I think that mostly people, when people think about data is uh, numeric data that appears. Uh, I think we certainly think of data as much more broadly. Um, you know, our conversation and the recording of it is data at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, voice uh, trading is data. Um, and all the information that occurs uh, when people spoke, speak on the phone is data. Uh, the digital exhaust that folks leave is data. So all of this um, can be mined and can be incorporated into a strategy. Um, and that's, uh, I think, the, the broader our broader understanding. Now, um, getting from, from that understanding to reality and actually implementing it and doing it in a way that is precise enough for you to rely on the calculations to out of quote uh, without much reliance on a human being is very, very hard. Um, yeah, and so and that's that's where I think a lot of people get to, um, and I want to get into that a little bit more because I think that this conversation we can have can be very helpful to the marketplace, since we both have experience with it. So one of the things that you know I've seen, I don't know whether you saw the same thing, is that um, there there certainly is a universe that can be auto quoted, um, but it's it's a real finite, small sliver. So did you see the same thing um, w when you were pursuing this strategy initially? Yes, that, mm, absolutely. So I think that uh, that's one of the issues uh, really is that uh, when you run your, and, and, and I think that people have different set of circumstances when they start uh, their own businesses. So I hope that this conversation does not, is not gonna discourage anyone from trying. Um, because obviously, you know, we had our own set of circumstances and maybe somebody else will have different set of opportunities that will make this possible. But um, there's a big difference about uh, from what you can do as part of a larger institution where you share the costs and uh, rely on the existing franchise and potentially um, uh, rely on an existing balance sheet and what you can do as a uh, standalone entity. When you have your own business, you have to be uh, militant about costs and making sure that your business is scalable to achieve uh, returns that would be um, interesting for your investors or even for you as an investor uh, in your own business uh, to achieve. So you want to invest your own capital or the capital of your investors uh, in a way that will produce scale. 
what we found is that while uh, our strategy was very interesting and generated a lot of interest from, from uh, investors, um, you know, raising a small amount of capital was not a problem. But the question was, would that be enough to actually take that and scale that um, to run a business that will, um, where you can retain uh, uh, top talent and um, uh, continue to develop, right? Because uh, you always have to think about uh, barriers to entry and especially in the quantitative uh, or any kind of analytics business, the barriers to entry are lower than people assume. So you have to constantly innovate. Innovating is expensive because your innovation doesn't produce a return every, every time. So you have to also think that you know, half of your investment or a certain portion of your investment in R&D will result in nothing. But, but I, I want to back you up for a second because I think that what you discussed or what you mentioned is, is one of the false assumptions, the thing that you realized, the, the scalability of this type of strategy. I think um, just because of the examples of other asset classes, when we think about automated uh, trading, algorithmic trading, we assume a low to no balance sheet strategy where every day you're going home flat because the algorithm has bought and sold consistently in the market and you know, you're not carrying a lot of overnight positions. But um, the mechanics in the corporate bond market, um, I don't believe the environment is mature enough for someone to operate that strategy effectively. Basically, you're gonna to have to hold positions, you're gonna to have to hold a lot of them. So, you know, when I've been asked by people, you know, how much balance sheet will I need if I'm going to pursue this strategy? My standard answer is, you know, you're, you're going to have to hold positions, you know, anywhere between, I would say, at least 100 million to maybe a half a billion in terms of, you know, total balance sheet usage to run an effective strategy. Is that in the range of what you guys are seeing or? I think you absolutely have to uh, run principal risk uh, in this market, and there's a mismatch between the business and offers. And I think that the biggest opportunity is in providing that immediate set of execution. Um, that really is the gap that exists in the market. Uh, I think there are plenty of people who do uh, agency trading in a very efficient and um, uh, scalable manner uh, who are already existing participants in the market. And the gap that we see is. Uh, filling that role that dealers used to play, where um, you know they provide immediate execution and take the risk off the hands of the buy side participants. Um, you know the kind of strategy is possible. The question is, if you're taking principal risk, uh, what kind of liquidity premium would you charge for it, and how well can you assess your ability to um, get out of these positions um, when the uh, market gets tough? Um, that uh, and assessing it is one thing, uh, and uh, you know, understanding how much uh, the buy side will actually pay for for the liquidity premium um, is a different story. And I think that the um, this, the set of um, uh, of bonds that trade um, with enough liquidity where that uh, opportunity is attractive enough for a market maker is very small. Um, so in our assessment, um, it wasn't the amount of capital you could deploy um, with reasonable um, risk um, was not enough to run a standalone business. So, so Seven Court had to pivot, and I want to stop here for a second because 
pivoting, I think pivoting is misunderstood. Um, I think that sometimes people view pivoting as um, almost in a negative way, like you were wrong. But um, I think those are people who haven't actually built anything. Uh, pivoting is a part of the journey. It's you, you can only really know something when you do it. And then you have to figure out, okay, then where is the product in this space? If it's not what we initially thought it was, what is it? So um, what, were the, what were sort of the signs that, that, that maybe you needed to pivot? And then what ultimately was your pivot? So, you know, I think that that's absolutely right. And just one thing I want to say is that, um, you know, admitting that you're wrong is actually uh, okay. I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes when you start this journey, uh, it, it's open-ended. Uh, and so, yes, you're absolutely, sometimes you will be wrong. Uh, probably saying that and get out and getting out of the trade early enough and uh, being honest with yourself as an entrepreneur, um, finding that balance between being, you know, too optimistic and uh, knowing when to end the trade is, is probably um, one of the hardest things. But, um, you know, we did it. Uh, and, um, you know, in our case, um, the uh, new opportunity came uh, to us. Um, so when we started um, discussing our trading strategy and uh, raising uh, capital, um, we saw a lot of demand in, in our product, uh, in our software. And initially we were very resistant uh, to sell it to the others. The software ba basically being like the mechanisms you were going to use exactly. to... Okay, all right. Um, and so, so we, uh, we were very resistant to selling it because we view it as our IP and uh, that we built with uh, tears and blood. Um, but at the end of the day, we said, okay, so if that, this is the gap, clearly this was the gap in the market. We were receiving uh, only reverse inquiries and uh, people calling us again and again asking if we can sell the software. And so we said, okay, so why are we resisting? There's clearly demand, there's something to do. We can help uh, our um, clients, our friends and uh, co-workers, why not pursue that? So you went from potentially competing with your customer base, well, your current customer base, to providing them with solutions. And Christina, I love this pivot because you know, something I say when people are working on ideas, to think about being the ammunition in the war, not being on one in one trench or the other, which is basically, what is everybody going to need if they're going to try to attempt to do something? And clearly, th there is something here around trading automation, um, around improving the way that technology can help uh, people find alpha in the marketplace. But... Um, somebody's going to have to actually deliver the technology. So is that the role that Seven Court is, is taking on now? That's correct. Um, so we, we think that the um, infrastructure that we build is um, uh, very helpful and, um, uh, you know, we, we built out the, um, um, the machine learning system that does a lot of different things uh, um, and mainly automates pricing and execution in, in the bond market. We provide um, predictive pricing, uh, provide trading signals, and um, uh, potentially will uh, provide alpha signals to, um, um, to the buy side and, and the sell side. Um, so uh, it, it's, it, it's valuable software um, that can help a lot of different uh, market participants. 
Um, and we always view, even in, in our role as a proprietary trading firm, as a liquidity provider, we view ourselves as a service provider to the rest of the street. So this is just a different way um, in which we can provide service and further the market structure. So is a seven core kit, is it, is it something customizable? Like I can, I'm, I'm able to adjust it to what my investment strategy is? Like how, how does it work? If I'm taking your software down, what am I doing? Sure. So um, we um, uh, provide, um, so in particular, the first uh, product that we're bringing to market is the predictive pricing. Um, so we predict the next bid and the next task. And we deliver it to our clients in two different ways. Um, we provide a feed of, for these predictions that we uh, produce based on our data and processing millions of data points and um, uh, extracting insights from, from data. Uh, but we also provide software uh, to clients that they can deploy on their own infrastructure. And so what it does is uh, allows them to use their proprietary data without being um, tied to uh, our data sources. So for, if you can imagine, for somebody with a large um, market share that, you know, for, for a player that already has all the data and receives it from, um, uh, from the dealers and from, from the outside world, the biggest uh, problem is how you aggregate it and how you actually extract the insights from it. Um, and so that's exactly what we would like to do. And did you, did you I would imagine that you came across this product trying to solve it for yourself. Right, exactly. Yes. All right, so w one of the other reasons why I was really interested in talking with you outside of what you guys are doing at Seven Core, which I think is fascinating, but um, you know, you've started your career in 99, so I can do the math on, on, on sort of uh, your age, unless you were starting at, you know, uh, in adolescence, but you became an entrepreneur, well, had you had any entrepreneurial experience before Seven Court? No, I have not. So this is my first uh, venture. So I, I think that the assumption around entrepreneurship um, or the imagery in the marketplace is it's, you know, uh, 24, 25 year old um, who's eating ramen noodles, living in their grandmother's basement and coming up with some brilliant idea and they wear hoodies and flip flops all day. But capital markets, fintech entrepreneurship, it seems to be a bit different. Uh, you know, I noticed people like yourself who have long seasoned careers in Wall Street stepping out and doing something like this. So can you, can you talk to me a bit about like what that transition is? Like what are you doing when you're shifting from working at a BlackRock to starting your own firm and, and really you know, raising capital from scratch? It, it's a big shift. Um, you know, the first week is liberating, and you think that the world is, uh, you're going to conquer the world. I should have done this years um, ago. You <laughs> should have done this years ago. Um, having done this for two years, I can say that um, being an entrepreneur is really not that much different than uh, working in a large firm. Uh, very disappointing um, um, insight, but uh, really, the qualities that make you successful in a large institution are the same qualities that make you successful as an entrepreneur. Being able to um, come to consensus, uh, get people um, to talk to you, um, you, you, know, you, you, need to, you need to have partners uh, and you need to work as a team. Um, you need to convince others uh, to invest in your idea. Uh, you need to manage a team and lead the team. So, 
really, it's all the same things that you do in the confines of a large organization. Uh, what is, is there is you probably, um, if you're willing to support your idea and if you are sure that you're right, uh, you have a little bit more of a leeway because um, you can um, you know, support your own business even if others don't believe it, uh, in it initially. Um, and you, you can also um, uh, probably uh, make you know, some of the decisions that um, maybe folks in the, you have a little bit more patience than folks but, in but a large organization. I, I want to challenge you a little bit here that it's the same thing because I think one of the, the, the obvious stark differences is just basic resources and infrastructure. Like I think that you know, where, where, where if you spent your whole career on Wall Street, you're somewhat institutionalized. Like you're used to coming in, having all the computers work, having the phone turrets work. If there's a problem with the technology, calling someone. Uh, if you need somebody to look over a contract, sending an email, and it get and now somebody's working on it. Um, so you're really starting at, at at from scratch when you're starting your own firm. So, like, how did you deal with that sort of resource gap? Like, did you find yourself you know, under desks and plugging in computers? Like, what, what are the absolutely. things that people can expect? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so I think that that's, that is definitely the case. I mean, I think that um, uh, my experience maybe was uh, a little bit different from um, a lot of uh, senior executives that I encounter. Um, I was always pretty hands-on, so it wasn't necessarily that big of a change for me. <laughs> um, but, yes, this is something that we actually do as part of our culture. Um, you know, we when somebody comes in, I mean, we don't have IT support and we don't have it on purpose. And so, um, you know, a lot of times we actually have people order their own uh, desktops and their own, uh, their own um, uh, developer stations. Um, and then ships in a box and you have to put it together. Uh, and, you know, no one's going to help you. So that kind of eases people from the uh, world of banking where everything is handed to you on a silver platter into uh, the understanding that, there is no support here, so right. it's uh, the buck stops with you. Yeah. And if you don't have that mentality, then it would be very hard, I think, to do uh, uh, to, to be an entrepreneur. But nevertheless, I mean, that is, uh, I think people make that transition pretty quickly. Um, or they don't, and it doesn't. Or they work. don't, and it doesn't work, right? Um, or they don't have, they don't have the the appetite for that. Um, and then how do you how do you make the transition? The fact that you know there isn't a check that shows up in your in your bank account on the first and fifteenth. Like what 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 do you need to prepare for if you're going to be um, you know a fintech entrepreneur when you're closer to forty than you are to twenty five? Well, so and that's an, that's a very interesting uh, question. I think that the fintech and the startup uh, world have changed quite a bit in the couple in the past couple of years. Um, if in the past uh, you could raise uh, Series A or a seed round on idea and on a pitch deck, uh, that is definitely no longer the case. Um, and if you think about, um, you know, investors are in the business of investing in companies that have a very high probability of success or reasonably high probability of success and uh, high growth potential. So they're looking for that um, inflection point where you already de-risked your business enough uh, but still have way to go in terms of upside. They are not here to provide uh, social services and provide employment for people on Wall Street who decided to uh, walk out and start a business. So um, 
in order to convince them that your risk, your business is de-risked, you have to do a lot of work. Uh, and at this point, the expectation is before you even raise a friends and family round, is that you have uh, a full full working prototype, full MVP, and you have some traction. So that means that you are already put in at least two years into business development of, of your product. Probably uh, the expectation should be that it would be done um, with your own funds. And people handle that period differently. I mean, some people have savings and uh, deliberately you know, save money to start a business. Some use supplemental income, but you have to be very creative. Some, some start a consulting firm. Some start a consulting <laughs> firm. Some we and very successful one. Um, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, or, you know, I guess some lucky people are independently wealthy and uh, that helps quite a bit. But, but that's, that's my point, Christina. Like, I think that the way the game is sort of set up, um, at least the initial expectations, would lead people to believe that entrepreneurship is only for the rich because who has, you know, two years of savings that they can dedicate to this um, when you've got a family and, and children and things like that. I mean, that's a, that's a real question you have to ask. And so I think that the, the approach on entrepreneurship and capital markets fintech, first of all, it requires people who have deep business, business experience like yourself. Like I think that this idea that you've come to, you wouldn't have had it you know, two years into your career. It's something that took 15 years in order for you to say, wait a second, I see something here. Um, and, and therefore, you know, and also executing this, I would imagine, you, you also need other Wall Street veterans. Um, so there's this, there's this massive lifestyle shift uh, that's just a lot different than I think, um, you know, people who are younger who are working on stuff that's not in capital markets fintech um, uh, don't necessarily feel. They never, you know, they didn't start a family yet, so they're not worrying about things like school tuition and uh, soccer practice and, and all the other stuff that goes with it. Um, but one of the other things that Sevencore uh, did, and I, and I really I wanted to hear more about this, uh, because there are a lot of these sort of bank fintech accelerator programs, but um, you and the Seven Core team uh, won an invitation to Barclays Accelerator. Um, I think it's powered by TechStars. Uh, I'd love for you to talk about like what does it mean when you're when you're a part of that uh, community, and, and was it helpful to you? Like, um, you know, I've, I've always wondered about it because I think sometimes. Banks are at odds with some of the initiatives that are out there, um, but clearly some banks like Barclays are making an effort. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, for us, um, um, when we were executing the pivot, um, it was a tremendously helpful experience. Uh, you know, we actually went, for, we had the uh, infrastructure built out and we had the guts, right? We had the software. The question was, how do you take that and uh, Put the business model around that that is scalable and um, is profitable, and being part of the TechStars community and uh, uh, talking to a tremendous number of other software firms was very helpful for well, us. Well, how define. did you how did you get a part of that community? Sorry, so did did they find you? Did you seek them out? No, so we um, we deliberately applied for for this program so that so that we could get help executing this pivot. Okay. And so we were very lucky to be accepted. Um, you know, this particular program um, 
so there are two parts, right? Uh, Techstars is um, a very high quality accelerator and pretty selective. So I think that they accept 1% of all applicants. Um, and, uh, you know, as we know, startups fail 92% of the time, um, but Techstars through uh, mentorship and providing resources turns that 92% failure rate into 94% success rate. So they also have, uh, through various programs, I'm seeing a tremendous number of startups. I think that they have uh, eight or 900 startups that went through it, have quantitative data, and they reduced uh, entrepreneurship to a science. Uh, so I think it's my belief that it's not an art, it's a science, and there are very specific things that work and very specific things that don't work. And so having the benefit of that team uh, uh, that coaches you uh, and uh, gives you all the tools to um, iterate on your idea and actually come up with um, the right balance um, made a huge difference. So, so how do they coach you? Because like, my impression of these programs is you know, they pro provide you with some infrastructure support, here's an office, um, they provide you with, I think of it as like, I don't know, mock presentations, like but what what, what what are the specific areas where you know there? What's the science behind this? Thing? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, um, so they, they had several. There are several things that uh, that were very helpful. And first of all, it's a mini MBA, um, so you have. Um, and given that you actually, it's very practical, right? It's uh, something that relates to your business, so you apply the lessons learned right away to real life uh, business. Um, it, so it's a lot more effective than doing that in a shorter period of time. Um, and that's probably, you know, my view is that probably how um, any kind of in, in MBA or program that lead, uh, that teaches you how to start a business would probably evolve into something like that. Except this. it's not a case study; it's your actual business. Exactly. That you, right? that's, okay. you really feel that. You right. Know, yeah. Your homework. Your homework is. Uh, you can just like file it yeah. away and be like, oh, they didn't make it. Like. This is my you can thing. get a B, you know. Right. That's, exactly. Only A plus is gonna. Um, no, I, I like that. That 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 actually makes it a lot clearer. So, you know, the case study that you're working on is your own company, and what are the things specifically that you're working on? So one of the things that they had was uh, what they call a mentor madness and investor madness, um, and it, you basically sit. They invite. Uh, tremendous number of uh, Wall Street executives, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, folks who are currently in the industry or just you know angel investors and alumni of the program. And uh, you pitch your business to them and they ask very pointed questions. Um, and once you do that, you, you basically have six or eight meetings uh, every day for a duration of several weeks. By the end of it, you see the picture, you see uh, the commonality. I mean, what, if one person gives you feedback, um, maybe they're right or wrong, but if you see the same feedback uh, several times, yeah. um, it's clear that this is the, this is the consensus. Yeah. So it's basically almost like doing A-B testing on your, on your business. And that's, that's a tremendous value to do that in a short period of time for, for any entrepreneur. Well, I think you had mentioned to me before, just the the getting the meetings in a concentrated period of time it really made things more efficient around your, you know, the refinement of your, your pitch and your approach. So how much time would it have taken you to get the number of meetings that you got through Techstars? Oh, an enormous amount of time. I mean, they put an enormous amount of uh, effort into finding, it's also, um, you know, there's a community around uh, that, uh, the accelerator, um, 
it's, it's the demo day that they have is a highly anticipated event. It's on, by invite only. It's uh, you know hand delivered to uh, only the top VCs. It's the hottest ticket in town. You know we were not even able to invite uh, everybody uh, who's in our friends and family um, uh, circle to to these events. Um, so. Uh, you know that, that there, there's a community that we potentially wouldn't have access to um, right. on our own. Right, and so you know, overall positive for Seven Chord. Like, what's your impression of like? What do you recommend in terms of these accelerator programs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would recommend it for anyone, uh, no matter where they are in their career. And obviously, you have to be coachable at any point in time and being open to being taught and uh, receiving a lesson. Um, otherwise, it's not going to work. But uh, it's a, it was a tremendous opportunity. And I think also uh, what was very important is that uh, you know, Barclays was a, you know, kind of our first beta client. And having uh, the benefit of uh, uh, having your first client on your side and being part of a team and uh, forgiving you for um, you know, the rustiness of your product and not being enterprise ready, because you never are when you, when you have right. your first beta. Um, and get, getting that understanding where you need to be to service uh, large banks, large asset managers, um, was very important to us. And I think that that's, you know, being enterprise ready is probably something that uh, a lot of startups don't appreciate and it's particularly important in capital markets. So talking about the capital markets, uh, um, how capital markets is different, you need to have support. You need to have uh, your whatever you're delivering. Your product has to be has to uh, satisfy security requirements. Uh, all these things are not necessarily part of your MVP if you're doing a mobile app. Well, well, you, I love that you said that because you articulated something that I don't think I've been able to articulate well. Is that when you are in capital markets fintech, your product must be to steal your phrase enterprise ready. And having an enterprise-ready product, like you can't beta test with you know a top ten asset manager. They don't do that. In order for them to use your solution, it's got to it's 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 got to be production ready and it's got to be production tested in terms of being established and providing results. And I think that for many people who look at entrepreneurship, they know that it's a, a, a an evolving product development process. However, um, you, there's just not a lot of forgiveness for that in this in this industry. So um, you sort of have to be starting at a point where not only do you have a really good product idea, but you can quickly get it to be enterprise ready, and that that does require some sort of partnership with somebody who is an enterprise who can who can kick the tires on it without necessarily throwing you out as a vendor if it's not you know perfect in in the first iteration, which nothing is. Um, well, this is great. I mean, I. I gotten a lot of insights from you around you know the entrepreneurship process i hope that anybody listening to this um has has uh, learned more about what it what it takes what do you predict you know just going forward next 18 months for for you guys what are your challenges and, and what are your goals for seven core our number one goal is to uh get as much feedback from um our clients as possible um we are um, we having a lot of interest and a lot of success in terms of distributing our, our products, and you know we're thinking about what our next steps would be, um, where you know what other products we should expand it um, into, and what other markets to to um, to tap into, and also um, how to best distribute and uh, how to best become the 
part of fabric of Wall Street. Um, these are, I think, our goals for um, for the next for next year at least. Well, the, the, if you can achieve them, um, I, I think it's going to be tremendously successful. But you know, as as you always know, you know, in your two years for this, I'm sure your timelines on stuff uh, have changed. I mean, everybody thinks it's going to happen in six months. And when, I, when they usually tell me that, I say, uh, maybe triple that. It's just, <laughs> it's just sort of the nature of it. But Christina, this was great. We really appreciate you coming in. And we're going to be monitoring your success. We hope to bring you back and, and hear what you've learned in the next phase, which is you know, establishing your product in the marketplace. Thank you very much for having me.